Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 102 with Bill Corbett. So we started doing a lot more family style, unless they want the, if they want the course menu, we'll do what they want. But we try to steer them towards like a family style menu because we can drop all these courses on the table at once. They have to pass each other food. They connect, they talk to each other more. So if it's a customer and an executive trying to like come to a deal, when you're sharing something, you're actually handing people food and, and looking them in the eye, like it changes the dynamic of the conversation. And so for me, it's really about thinking about what, how do we get them to the goal they want to get to, right? That executive or the salesperson hosting that event, you know, what is their goal and how do we facilitate that goal? And that's like, that's hospitality to me, right? It's like, it's not about me showing you all the tricks I can put on a plate at once. It's, it's really about like making this like convivial environment where they can connect. And, and that's what we really try to do. And we actually, that's sort of like our mission statement is, is we use food and beverage as a tool for connection. And if we're not doing that, then we're not doing our job and we have to look at what we're doing. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category, as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 11 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant. This week, my guest is Bill Corbett. Many people know him from his years working as a pastry chef with people like Sam Mason, Wiley Dufresne, Lincoln Carson, Michael Mina, and Daniel Patterson. But he left the world of pastry behind and is currently the executive chef and head of culinary at Salesforce. Bill's been recognized as the best pastry chef 2011 from San Francisco Magazine, and in 2013, he was selected as one of the top 10 pastry chefs in America by Dessert Professional Magazine. We talk about the transition from being a restaurant pastry chef to overseeing Salesforce's Ohana floor kitchens and barista programs across the company's global towers. There are a lot of changes that come with a transition like this, and Bill discusses learning how to be a better leader and stepping away from the food. We also talk about punk rock and Brooks Headley, and hear about how the Killed by Desserts events came to be. If you've never heard of them, they were a series of collaborative dessert events he did with Christina Tozzi, Lincoln Carson, Francisco Magoya, Michael Escanis, and Brooks Headley. Man, I wish I could have gone to one of those. I hope they do them again. And if you're a fan of pastry chefs or want to hear about transitioning into the corporate food world, this episode's for you. And now a word from our sponsor, Savory Jobs. Are you shocked at what it costs to post a job ad? Instead, imagine a job site for restaurants only, where you could post as many jobs as you wanted, and it only cost 50 bucks. Not for each job you post, but for all the jobs you post, for an entire year. Well, my sponsor, Savory Jobs, has made that a reality. They've launched a revolutionary, easy-to-use job site just for restaurants. And it only costs $50 for unlimited job posts for an entire year. Plus, for our loyal listeners, use the code SAVORY10 and get 10% off. That's S-A-V-O-R-Y-1-0. 
So go to savoryjobs.com and discover the job site that's shaking up the restaurant industry. Forget the big corporate sites like Indeed and Monster. Join the revolution at savoryjobs.com and remember to use code SAVORY10 for 10% off. And now, on with the show. Thanks so much and have a great week. Hey, Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Man, I guess, I don't know, we've never met, but I feel like you and I probably connected on Twitter like a decade ago or so. I talk about uh, very fondly, like old Twitter, you know, like when you got on in 2010 or 11, like who were the chefs on there at the time? And I feel like I've stayed in touch uh, on and off with so many of those people. I remember uh, joining around 2009. I, I joined, I think, because of Chris Cosentino. We had done like Pebble Beach food and wine together, and I ended up helping with a bunch of stuff uh, for his his event. And uh, I was doing my own events, and then he ran into some technical difficulties, and I ended up helping him out. So we, re- me and him really connected there. That's when we first met and became friends. And then, and he was very active on Twitter. And so I was like, oh, I'll check it out. And, and I jumped on, I think in 2009, Twitter was a different animal back then. I think it was, it was very collaborative. And I think it was a lot of chefs sharing ideas and it was pretty amazing. And then somehow, you know, it's not that that's not there anymore, but I can remember like ideas and food would constantly be just throwing out ideas and interacting and People like you, like that's how I, you know, heard about you was because of Twitter. You know, we follow each other and, and you know, we've definitely interacted in the past uh, many times, I think, over the years, but never met or talked in person in any way. I love those days where, you know, I, I'd be sitting at the breakfast table and I'd post something and Alex from Ideas and Food was one of those guys who would almost always chime in and say like, oh, that's great. But like, what if you did this? And then, you know, someone yeah. else would just add to the conversation and say, oh yeah, I like that. But how about that? And you could have this kind of almost like crowdsourcing a dish over Twitter, you know, in the course of an hour totally. or two with like 20 people. And I just thought that was so cool. And then two days later, somebody would post a photo of like, hey, here's what we did with it. You know, it's like, I remember Francisco Magoya would respond with like, oh, I saw that idea and I went and made it happen. And here it is. And you're just like, oh, cool. And then honestly, Twitter is the reason we did. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of it. We did an event called Killed by Dessert about around 2012, 2013. There were six pastry chefs got involved together. It was me, Lincoln Carson, Francisco Magoya, Christina Tozzi, Brooks Headley and Michael Lasconis. And so we wanted to do this event and it started honestly from a Twitter post that Lincoln did where he kind of just listed his top three favorite things or top five favorite foods. And one of them was like ice cream right out of the machine, which is like this experience you can't give your guests, right? It's like, cause it's just not stable. Like unless you run it to them or you bring them back in the kitchen, you know, they're not ever going to experience that. But the best ice cream you'll ever have is like when you're spinning it out of that Carpeggiani and like, and you take like a spoonful off it. And that's like perfect texture, perfect temperature. And Lincoln talked about that, right? And so then we started talking about like, what if we did an event around these sorts of ideas of things we can't normally give the guests or our favorite things? And so we ended up, the six of us somehow ended up on a call and developed this event called Killed by Dessert. We ended up doing about four events, I believe. We started in Brooklyn. We did it in the Momofuku Milk Bar like bakery because uh, it was huge. And we could set up tables and cook right next to the guests. And then we and then we took that to we did it in Austin at Foreign and Domestic. They hosted us, and uh, we did it in Washington D.C. at kind of scaled down version on a rooftop for a charity event. And then we did a really big one in San Francisco at SF Cooking School, where we did a, a two day event. Where the first day was a big bake sale, where we were able to incorporate about fifteen pastry chefs locally. And the next day was the dinner, and we would sort of do this reverse dinner where we'd serve savory hors d'oeuvres from each chef. And then you'd sit down and get two courses from each pastry chef. So it was like 
you, you get a little bit of savory, but then you literally ate like 12 courses of dessert and it's terrible for you. And, but really like a really fun event. And we would invite people to come help plate from the crowd and they could come up and help us assemble the dishes. And it was just a super energetic, fun event that we developed and everybody just got really busy. You know, Christina obviously has a lot going on and Brooks opened Superiority Burger and Michael left LeBurner then. And, you know, Francisco's now with Modernist Cuisine and Lincoln's, you know, opened one restaurant is in the process of opening like several more. So, yeah. So, you know, we, we often, it comes up every six months or so. Somebody's like, when are we going to do another one? And we, we just haven't kind of come around to do it, but I think it'll, it'll happen one day, I think. But, uh, but that was a result of Twitter, right? Back in the day, it was this great collaboration tool. Like that inspired chefs without restaurants so much. Like you talk about foreign and domestic, like indie chefs week, you know, I thought was so cool, even though I'd never yeah. been to one of those events, but watching, what Ned and and them were all doing, you know, these kind of under the radar mm-hmm. chefs getting together, doing collaborative things, working together. Um, you know, that was kind of a model for a lot of what I wanted to do. And uh, I, I'm not at that level yet where I'm doing that, but ideally I'm going to be traveling around doing kind of pop-up collaborative dinners as, as part of this. But yeah, I really, That's awesome. I miss those days. You know, I had a problem with smoking some white chocolate one time and Francisco was like really great about, you know, going via DM on Twitter, talking through the process. Like, what did you do? How did you do it? Here's what I would do. You know, someone who's probably got a million things on his plate who could take some time to just talk to me about how to best smoke white chocolate, you know? Yeah, totally. I think that was really incredible about that time period. Even so, those people are still like that. You know, if you were to pose a question to them online, they would probably at least still answer it in short form. Michael Lasconis is the same way. Like I can't count the amount of times, you know, I'm trying to figure something out and I reach out to him and he's got a very technical answer for me, but it all makes sense and it works. So we jumped kind of right into it, but I'd love to backtrack a little bit. How did you get into the food and beverage industry? Were you always someone who was interested in that? Did you know early on that you wanted to be a pastry chef? No, the funny thing is, uh, I, my food knowledge growing up is incredibly lacking. Like, like I was always, once I got into food, I was always jealous of the chefs who were like, my grandma cooked me this, and this is how I got into food. And it's just part of my being and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, you know, those stories of like, you know, growing up running around the kitchen as a five-year-old, those are not my stories. My story was uh, my parents do not cook. They don't really get into cooking. It's not something they cherish. You know, food is just it's life sustaining. And that's about it. You know what I mean? Like my dad always makes fun of me for using fancy ingredients and drinking fancy coffee. Like even when he flies here to visit, like I will make him coffee every day, but he will bring his Folgers freeze-dried instant coffee. And then he'll make fun of me for grinding beans and taking five minutes to actually make a coffee. But uh, so my, my family wasn't really, isn't, doesn't, isn't centered around food at all. Um, uh, I, I kind of didn't know what I want to do with my life for a long time. I was like stabbing in the dark a lot in my late teens. I had no clue. And then uh, somewhere around my, I worked in a video store. The video store actually closed and the, the owners were like, oh, you can come work with us. You know, we're going to open another one down the street. That never really materialized. I went on sort of unemployment and like, you know, I was collecting my check and, and I had like six or seven months of that. And I was waiting for them to open that store. And then it wasn't, it didn't seem like it was going to happen. So a friend of mine was, literally a dishwasher at um, this restaurant called Mongolian Grill. It's an all-you-can-eat buffet. You kind of fill a bowl with raw ingredients to bring it up to this massive, like, seven-foot-wide round flat top. And you throw the food down there, cook it with sticks, and slide it back into a bowl and hand it to the guest. Uh, So I got my start in a kitchen like that. Like, I had worked at McDonald's as a teenager as well, which, you know, provided me with 
skills I didn't realize I even had at the time, you know, just like being organized, staying efficient, cleaning. But so, so I kind of excelled in this restaurant um, and, and started as a dishwasher and quickly moved into the kitchen, just doing prep items, making like slicing all the meats that are going on the buffet, slicing the vegetables and trying to get really fast with a knife and imitate like Martin Yan chopping really fast. And obviously I did it terribly with like rental knives that the restaurant supplied. But in the end, the, that restaurant had a kind of a, a bunch of us ended up working there that knew each other. And it became this like camaraderie in the kitchen. And, you know, we were like blasting punk music in the back and like, and really kind of enjoying our time in the kitchen together. And I realized I, I really like food. I really like, like there's a magic in it for me that like when you transform raw ingredients into this, into something else. And I started to learn that there. And obviously I realized I wasn't going to really learn what I needed to learn to actually cook well there. So, you know, I, I got really, basically it, it ignited something in me for cooking. So I ended up moving to Florida not long after that, just to follow like friends who were in punk and, and, and cause there's a really great punk scene in Tampa, Florida in the mid to late nineties. So around 90, 99, I moved to Florida for a couple of years, worked in a random place called seventh heaven psychic cafe which literally gave psychic readings and then you could order lunch. And I worked in that while I lived in Florida at the time, honestly, I thought I was going to go into graphic design because I was really into punk and I'm still really into punk. So I moved there to live with, you know, these punk friends and it was very community minded. You know, one of the friends owned a, owned a record shop and they were using that as a venue as well. And then, you know, our friends were designing the records and pressing the records and doing fanzines and, it was a very, you know, printing the t-shirts. So we had, we had a pipeline for all of it. Right. And we were like, you know, when bands would go on tour, they'd come and we'd help print shirts and we'd all just go in and help, you know, each other out and, and help each other get ready for tour and things like that. I was never in the bands at that time, but so I got into that scene really, you know, I worked in Tampa and then I was like, I really, I really want to work in kitchens. It, it clicked and I ended up uh, meeting my wife there and moving back to Canada for a little bit. I'm originally from Canada, from Southwestern Ontario, just to kind of move back with my parents for, for a few months, save some money because my wife and I were going to get married and then I was going to move to New York. And then, uh, you know, at that time, I just really got into like, it sounds cheesy, but watching Food Network because at that time, the Food Network was actually teaching people how to cook, right? It was like very basic, but it was like going through the basics really well. And so, you know, I would watch all these shows obsessively and learn about cooking roux and stocks and you know mirepoix and all that sort of stuff and and then reading every book I could get my hand on hands on I would just like absorb it and and so I ended up moving to New York after going back to Canada this is a bit of a long story but you know my wife and I was going to school at the time in uh, New York for school of visual arts and then I was like I'm just gonna work in a restaurant and try to get a job I literally like naively I hadn't gone to culinary school and I hadn't spent time in a New York kitchen I dropped off like 75 or 100 resumes even like at like I remember like 71 Clinton fresh food like why they do frames earlier restaurant and like and I look back and I'm like man no one was gonna hire me what was I even thinking you know but like I ended up working in this bar in the kitchen in the bar and then uh this woman came in uh, and saw me, you know, in my chef or my, you know, cook's whites or whatever. And so, I, you know, she started talking to me and realized, like, I started talking to her saying I was trying to find something. She was like, why don't you come do a do a stage? And I had barely known what a stage was. I had actually just just set up my first one at Le Cirque, which is like insane as well, because I was way out of my out of my depth at that point to try and even go in there. 
anyway, so this one was like, oh yeah, I work for this great pastry chef. His name is Lincoln Carson. He's awesome. We're looking for someone, you know, we need someone on the ice cream station. Well, and then, you know, Lincoln was working for Be Our Guest at that time, which is a huge restaurant group in New York that owns, I don't know how many now, but at the time they owned like 12 restaurants. And Lincoln was heading up a team at a commissary that was cooking all the, doing all the pastry for seven of those restaurants. So Lincoln took me under his wing and I came in and I staged and, and, uh, you know, Lincoln, I saw something in me and offered me a job and I really excelled under Lincoln and Lincoln kind of, you know, honestly changed my life and has been still a mentor to this day. But, uh, but I started working with him and he introduced me to like Sam Mason and, and Johnny Azzini and all them. And, you know, I went and staged with Johnny and Sam. And then, and then at one point I called Sam up to ask him a technical question about something I was trying to do. And he asked me, you know, what am I up to? Because he's actually looking for a cook. And, uh, and so I ended up going and working for Sam at WD50. And then Lincoln reached back out and said, hey, we need someone to head up the pastry kitchen at Michael Mina in San Francisco. Do you want to come out? And my wife and I had always wanted to move to San Francisco. So we jumped on that, came out, was there about two and a half years, went over to Qua for a while, helped Daniel Patterson with a few of his restaurants. And then I went and worked for uh, a group here called the Absinthe Group. And then I left and was trying to open my own restaurant and now have landed uh, at Salesforce about four years ago, four and a half years ago. Well, it sounds like you had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. I mean, just throwing the names out there. I mean, I think those are pretty much, if not household names, definitely really well-known names in the culinary field. I mean, I can't imagine working with a better group of pastry chefs. I was really, really fortunate. Like those, you know, working with Lincoln and then Sam and then, you know, just at WD50 alone at that time just connected you to so many people and gave you so much uh, skill and sort of open-minded thinking about how you can, about food and how you can cook and, and about learning like, you know, the hows and whys of cooking. And, you know, so I never ended up going to culinary school and I ended up just being very fortunate and falling, like not fall, maybe not falling into something, but like definitely, you know, finding the right path for me. Yeah, we talk about that a lot on the show, like go to culinary school or don't. I mean, it depends on what your opportunities are and your drive. But I mean, you probably got a much better education going your path than so many people who would just go to a traditional culinary school for baking and pastry. Uh, you know, I would definitely trade culinary school for having those opportunities. I think I got lucky, to be honest. You know what I mean? I think I think there's value in culinary school as well. I think it depends on the person. Are you going to go out there and make those connections? I was also older. I was like 29 when I finally figured out what I had figured out a few years before what I wanted to do, but it took me a few years to get my foot in at any restaurant that would take me, you know, or, or in a kitchen. It wasn't even a restaurant. It was a commissary kitchen, but we were doing things at a restaurant level. So it was like, you know, and, and because you weren't doing service, you were just cooking like eight to 10 hours a day and really learning the ins and outs of like, of like ice cream and pastry and, you know, custards and whatever, you know, like all the techniques involved with pastry, like tempering chocolate and doing chocolate work and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I think, you know, but I think some people getting those skills will get you that foot in the door, you know? And I think that's important too. I just think like people need to be wary of, you know, are you going to go spend the hundred thousand dollars and then get a job where you're making $15 an hour and trying to pay that back? Like that's, I think I, I like the way actually SF Cooking here approaches it. SF Cooking School in San Francisco. It's a, it's four months in class, two months on an externship, and I think it comes in around twenty five k or something. And yeah, it's, that's a lot less than most schools. And what they've done is really like 
they've really brought in like the local chefs to connect with, you know, they bring in like Brandon Jew and, and Daniel Patterson and myself. And, you know, there's so many great chefs that go in there and do amazing work with them and, and they connect them into the industry, which is great. And they talk to the industry about what do you need in a cook? Right. And that's what we want to build, how we want to build our cooks with where I never had that dialogue with anyone else. Like, it wasn't like, what do chefs need today? It was like, we're going to try to get as much out of them as we can money-wise. And then, you know, we'll give them the curriculum we think they need. And then you, you can take them and do it, you know, try to reshape them. But this is trying to shape people for the industry, which is great. We need more of that for sure. And more mentors in the kitchens. It sounds like you've had some really great people to work for. I don't always think that's everyone's experience. So totally, I think you're, you're fortunate there. So, I had some not so great ones too, but yeah, we, we I had all, some definitely experiences that are, you know, he uses the warning signs for other cooks coming up, but. Well, now you're the executive chef uh, at Salesforce. So that's not a restaurant and it sounds like you're not doing pastry. So what was that transition like? Yeah. So when I was out trying to do my, I was trying to open a restaurant, basically, you know, I left, uh, you know, I've wanted to open my own restaurant for years, say a savory restaurant with a heavy pastry element to it. Um, I actually wanted to open sort of like a vegetarian version of uh, of a soda fountain, you know, with like comfort foods, but all veg, you know, house-made veggie burgers and like a little more elevated still, you know, great cocktails and then being able to infuse like the soda fountain into the cocktail program. And then, and then having an ice cream shop that was like on the side that you could like come up and order out of the window kind of thing. So I was working on that business plan and I'd gotten one investor and I thought, okay, it's time to like go. I have like a little bit of money in my pocket right now. And I just need to like, I was going to do it in Los Angeles because my wife was originally from there. So we went down to Los Angeles and honestly, like not because of Los Angeles, but because of like some landlord problems and things like that. We had a terrible time. The only bright spot was our son was born. Our first son was born uh, in Los Angeles in 2016, but the rest of the year was just terrible. And then I had built a relationship through doing some uh, some private events and other things and and uh, with actually the, the CEO from Salesforce, Mark Benioff. And so in the fall of that year, I was actually negotiating purchasing a restaurant back in Oakland to come back to the Bay Area. And uh, he emailed me and was like, hey, we're doing this thing. And he kind of explained it in a, in a weird way. It, did, it was like, honestly, I call the email that he sent me the haiku because it was just very much like, hey, we're going to do this kitchen at the top of one of our towers and it's going to be for the employees to come and recharge and they can have a little bite and some coffee. And, you know, it's going to be an interesting little kitchen. It's going to be open and, you know, and and we're looking for an an executive chef. Would you be interested in interviewing for it? And I said, yeah, definitely. What's, can you give me a job description? He was like, well, I think I just wrote it. (laughs) So I was like, okay. So, so I flew up from LA and checked out and got a tour from the, uh, I report into the real estate department because real estate and workplace services. So that's the department I now report into. But some of the some of the folks in that department gave me a tour. And at the time, uh, so this was going to be at the top of what's a building we have called Salesforce East, which is uh, at the corner of Fremont and Mission in Selma in San Francisco, really close to like the core of this you know, downtown. And then Kitty Corner for that, they were building a not us, but there's a building being built called, and they were calling it Salesforce Tower. Salesforce is going to, you know, bought the naming rights and was taking like about around 60 some odd percent of the building. And, uh, you know, the building was not even finished yet. So they they put me in a construction elevator and took me up to the 53rd floor. 
And we got off this construction elevator and to this floor with no windows. And we looked out at this view of the Bay Area, like 360 degree view of the Bay Area. And they started going, well, you know, you know, this is where we would have the kitchen. This is where we do this. And then and then they're like, but it's not going to be on this floor. It's going to be on the very top floor, the 61st floor. So they said, this is what we're looking to do. And then, they, you know, they showed me the plans for the other one in Salesforce East, which was also under construction. The building was done, but they were finishing that this floor. So I thought, you know, I've got a kid who's now like at that point, six months old. And when I was doing this tour with them and I was like, you know, I want to be able to enjoy life with him. And if I open a restaurant, I'm going to be buried. And so, you know, I thought maybe I'll take this. So I ended up like literally like squashing the deal at the last minute to buy the restaurant and taking this job. And, and what it was is this, this space called an Ohana floor um, that Mark had, had sort of dreamed up. The idea is they t- we take our top floors and we give our top floors to the employees as opposed to the executives. You know, a lot of companies will give that top floor to executive offices but Mark made them these sort of open spaces that are very comfortable, amazing views. Uh, we put a kitchen in them, the kitchen, these small, beautiful sort of, we call them exhibition kitchens. Um, they're open kitchens, but they're really well-designed and beautiful. And then the spaces are beautiful. There's tons of plant life, anywhere from 10 to 40,000 plants, depending on which Ohana floor we're talking about. Uh, literally like live planted columns, you know, everywhere. And and so the idea is these are places that employees can go and sort of just recharge, take a break, enjoy the view. And then we also use them, obviously, for events. You know, they're like kind of showstopper spaces. So we also, you know, we host community events for, you know, a lot of nonprofits can use our spaces for free on nights and weekends. And then we do, you know, obviously customer dinners and executive dinners and community-based dinners and uh, lunches. And then our team does like... Uh, we do like during the day, we do like a mix of employee engagement and then executive and customer support. On the employee engagement side, we'll do things like cookbook events where we'll bring in like Sean Brock or Renee Redzepi or Otto Lenghi and do like, my team will cook out of their book and serve a bunch of snacks. And then, you know, anywhere from 70 to 200 people will come sit down and watch a fireside chat between me and those chefs. So those are like our employee engagement. We'll do surprise pop-ups where we'll announce them internally on our sort of internal social channels and be like, you know, oh, we're doing this like pupusa pop-up right now. And everyone will literally run up there and try to get them before they're gone. And then we just put up snacks on the counter, little hors d'oeuvres size snacks where uh, employees and guests can come by and try a snack. We don't feed the employees like lunch. We don't run like a cafeteria. And the great thing is like, because we're so small, you know, each of our kitchens maybe has including baristas, like uh, around a team of 11 or 12. And uh, it's like a chef de cuisine, two sous chefs, uh, one being a pastry sous chef, and then two line cooks, a dishwasher, and then uh, three to five baristas, depending on the location. And so they can come up and get a really good coffee. We source great coffee and we get to like, you know, and we, we really emphasize hospitality. So, you know, we talk to the guests, the guests come up to the counter, try a snack, they can sit at the counter, there's stools there. And then for the dinners and lunches, we have like a 24 seat dining table that people can come sit at. And, uh, and during the day, employees just tend to camp out there and work and hang out and enjoy the view and try to snag the snacks as they come up. But we get to operate like in a way on that restaurant level, right? We, you know, the farmer's market in San Francisco is a five minute walk away. We can still go down there, get product. Some farmers will drop off directly to us. They'll pull the van up on their way to the market and we'll run down and just pull off the truck. So we still get amazing product. Uh, we're small, we're nimble, and we just get to like, I don't know, it's really, it's incredibly fun. And I feel incredibly fortunate to to do what I do now. 
Sounds like a really cool place to work. I'd like to work at a place like that. I worked at Ikea and they weren't quite at that level, but they definitely had amenities and things like that, that I've never experienced in any other business before. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I think those are great companies to work for. And they let me build the program from the ground up and kind of uh, trusted me, which was amazing. You know, and I've never felt that level of trust before where we kind of built it. We've definitely set up like, you know, we're very serious about examining our, our form of hospitality because it's not like a restaurant, right? Like it's, you know, we have right now four kitchens around the world and we have another uh, another five on the way. So we've got one in, we've got two kitchens in San Francisco, one in New York and one in London that are all currently, well, not currently operational because of the pandemic, but they were all operational uh, and will be again soon. Uh, but then next year we open Tokyo, Atlanta, Dublin, and then after that is Chicago and after that is, is Sydney. So do you have so your hands in that? Do you go and try? Yeah, those are all, yeah, I oversee the whole program. So we have, uh, we have an amazing kitchen designer who designs like all of our spaces. So they're all consistent. Uh, we work with an amazing architecture firm that helps design the spaces. So like we've all kind of, we all work very symbiotically and it's really, it's amazing. Like the, the spaces we're building, you know, for the chefs, it's about, you know, dropping your ego at the door, you know, and that's sort of like how when I interview people, when I talk to them, I'm like, this isn't about you anymore. You know, it's not about like, you're not going to get press here because not not many people want to write about, you know, the corporate chef program because they can't go enjoy it. Right. If you can't go enjoy it, who wants to write about it? That's why we have chefs without restaurants. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's uh, so there's just, you know, this sort of mantra of like, drop your ego at the door. It's about facilitating what's going on at the table. Right. And so when we first opened, I was thinking we're in this fancy tower, we're fancy kitchen, and and we're gonna do like coursed out menus. And so we started doing it with coursed out menus, four to five courses, and then we realized we were kind of making people stay longer than they wanted to, right? They were they'd all been there since eight a.m. already working somewhere else in the building, and they had to come up and do some business dinner. And then we realized also we were interrupting them every fifteen to twenty minutes with a new course and stopping the conversation. So we started doing a lot more family style, unless they want the, if they want the course menu, we'll do what they want. But we try to steer them towards like a family style menu because we can drop all these courses on the table at once. And then they can just, they have to pass each other food. They connect, they talk to each other more. So if it's a customer and an executive trying to like come to a deal, when you're sharing something, you're actually handing people food and and looking them in the eye, like it changes the dynamic of the conversation. And so for me, it's really about thinking about what, how do we get them to the goal they want to get to, right? That that executive or the salesperson hosting that event, you know, what is their goal and how do we facilitate that goal? And that's like, that's hospitality to me, right? It's like, it's not about me showing you all the tricks I can put on a plate at once. It's it's really about like making this like convivial environment where they can connect. And, and that's what we really try to do. And we actually, that's sort of like our mission statement is, is we use food and beverage as a tool for connection. And if we're not doing that, then we're not doing our job and we have to look at what we're doing. And that's sort of sort of where we where we start over again. If it's like, are we connecting people with this? If not, start again. A lot of chefs who come from restaurants have trouble transitioning into a non-restaurant environment. What were some of your biggest challenges when you got there? Did you have any? We've had a lot. And also, we still have them as a team. Um, most of my team comes from restaurants, I would say 95%. Or if they're baristas, they came from like, you know, the local roaster sort of barista bar. I think the challenge was, you know, we stepped into this corporate world and it was very structured. And and I think anybody else coming in, coming from another company would kind of understand the structure more quickly and understand what resources were available. And I think that was a big thing. Like as a chef, it took me a while to learn that 
I can ask for more things than I'm used to, you know, and I can, I can say, listen, this would make our team more viable. Like, and it's a, like, I can, I hired a project planner because I was, I couldn't keep up with all the projects we're working on. So I hired a project manager that handles the kitchens now. And she, you know, funnels the questions to me every week in a weekly meeting now. So it's like, okay. But whereas before it was like, I was getting all these emails all week long and I couldn't step away from the kitchen long enough to like sit down and read them. And then I realized like I shouldn't be in the kitchen anymore. You know, we're we're building all this. And if I'm supposed to be running it, like I can't, I can't chop the onions and make the decisions on what the cooking suite's going to look like or is what that the, hard, you know. is that hard stepping out of the kitchen? Cause that's something I think so many of us deal with, even in restaurants, when you become an executive chef and you start cooking or stop cooking and doing more admin stuff, was that tough it for was, you? It was super hard at first. So my boss at the time, she was the, the head of real estate. I basically, you know, we had a, a one-on-one meeting uh, and I brought this sort of thought to her and, you know, I was like, I was like, have you ever heard of a chef de cuisine? And I was like, and she, of course, hadn't. And so I kind of explained to her, our company's done a lot of work with Michael Mina. So I just explained to the Michael Mina organization how like a chef de cuisine operates and what they do and how they're there to represent the brand and the chef. And, and I was like, I think we need to hire a chef de cuisine in each one of these kitchens because like I'm getting buried trying to cook and kind of make all the decisions and grow the department. And so she was like, all right, hire one, you know? So we did that. And then uh, I hired Yoni Levy, who's a, uh, he was the chef at Outerlands before coming to tell us. And then he'd also helped open up uh, Alta with Daniel Patterson. And he's just an incredibly hard worker and really a great person and, and uh, really cares about what he does. So it was amazing to pull him in, but like he would, you know, be running the kitchen and I would step on the line and then go, what are you doing here? You know? And I'd start like questioning a cook and being like, you sure you want to do that? Is that the right movie? You know? And I'd start like picking apart what they're doing when Yoni had already talked to them, you know? And then, so it was really like, it was, you know, it was co-managing almost and double managing these people. And they were like, who am I supposed to listen to? And then Yoni pulled me aside and said, dude, you gotta not do that, you know? And I was like, okay, fair enough. You know, so a lot of it was learning to be a better leader, learning to let him lead and let the other chef de cuisines in the other locations lead. So now we sort of like, we building and standardizing the program is what I'm about. And it was hard to step away from the food you know, I still very much walk by and check it out every time, you know, when we are in the kitchen and I check it out every day and see what they're putting up and, you know, and if there's an issue, I talk to Yoni now and Yoni gets to talk to them, you know, so it's, so it took me a little while to, to be a better manager in that way. And it's taken me a while to be a better manager overall, because I learned a lot of bad habits, you know, I wasn't a screaming chef at this point, you know, not that I never did that in the past because I did and it was terrible. But at this point in my career, I'd given up on that. But like, you know, you still, no one teaches you to be a manager in the restaurant world. You know, it's just like, is the food going out on time? And if the food's going out on time, then you're managing, you know, to an extent. That's the way it's looked at a lot. And no one teaches like real leadership. And the amazing thing about coming into a corporate company like this and a company that truly cares is leadership training is huge. It's honestly the, the, the stuff I do as a manager now takes up so much of my time, but it teaches me so much about how I should be managing these people and how I should be helping them grow and how I should be getting the best out of them and trying to understand, okay, this person works this way. And now that's, so I have to manage them a little differently and, and to draw more out of them. But yeah, so in the end, it was, it was, it was tough to walk away from the food part of it. But in the end, I think I'm really stoked to be where I'm at. I'm very excited to be building this really, what I think is a really special program that I don't think exists anywhere else. Like, I don't think like every other, 
not every other company, but a lot of companies, you know, they, they do the cafeteria thing, which is fine because employees love it. But I'm lucky that I get to like kind of work at this like very intimate level because the teams are small, the kitchens are small, and we get to do just amazing work because of it. And uh, and, and I get to help like build this this ship. And I've never been able to build a culture before, uh, especially as a pastry chef. I was always you always have to fall in line whatever the culture the chef is setting, right? So like as a pastry chef, I was always frustrated with something one way or another, or like bringing problems to management. And they're like, yeah, you're right. That, that should change, but it never would change. Right. And it was just like, so it was very frustrating on that. And, but now it's like, I get to be that change. And, and when come, people come to me, I get to say, look at our program, honestly, and say, okay, are, are we doing the right thing here? Or should we change it? And, and we have a very open dialogue about like moving forward as a team. And it's, it's amazing. I'm excited to see that as becoming also more of a trend in kitchens in general. I mean, totally. I've often said, you know, I, I wanted to start my own business for a long time, but the straw that broke the camel's back is the last job I was at. I felt like I was not on the same page as my general manager. There was a really bad culture where I was working and I was the executive chef, you know, mm-hmm. but I still wasn't allowed to run the kitchen the way I felt it needed to be run. And I was just right. like, I can't come in every day kind of executing the orders that I didn't agree with. And then, you know, right. allowing this toxic culture. And I just, for me, I had to leave, you know, and it's, sad. I had been at that job for 10 years. And this is something Mm -hmm. I see over and over in kitchens is just the refusal to fix these problems or just flat out, you know, ignoring them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it is changing luckily now. I think, you know, when I was coming up, that was not the way it is. And, and, And we all perpetuated it, you know, we all took part in it. And then, you know, I think we're all learning now at this point that that was not the right way. And, and there's just like all these excuses made for why restaurants should be run in those ways. And, Oh, you know, you can't turn a profit. You can't do this. Well, then, then it's not a viable business in the end. If you can't turn a profit without abusing people, then it's not viable. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, we always talk about how crazy it is that this wouldn't fly in any other place, right? Like if you're an accountant, your boss would never come through and like throw a, a book at you, an accounting book at you and right. scream at you totally. in the middle of the totally. office. Like, yeah. why does that work in kitchens? I don't know. Right. And you wouldn't be working like, you know, like there's, there's one restaurant I worked at where it was like, we'd show up at eight or eight 30 in the morning and we'd work till midnight because they didn't want to hire two crews. And we'd do that Monday through Friday. And then we'd have only dinner service on Saturday and we'd still come in at, you know, noon or one and work a 10 to 12 hour day. And then they'd call that a half day. And then, uh, and then you'd have Sunday off and you were just burnt out, you know, and, and they wondered why they couldn't keep staff and why people didn't care about, you know, what they were doing. And it was just like, but those sorts of things are like, you know, totally taking advantage of people. And then you're told, well, if you can't hack it, then you must not be good enough, you know? And it's like, or you must not care enough, or maybe you're not meant for this industry. And it's like, well, maybe the industry needs to change. And I think, I think it is changing and I think it's getting better. And maybe there's going to be less of that, like insanely meticulous chef run restaurant. I think there's enough of them around though. They're, they're still there, you know, like there's still amazing restaurants doing that kind of work still. Um, And I also think it's, you know, I don't want to say like a young man's game, but you know, you mentioned having a child for me, it was the same thing. You know, I have kids and I sacrificed a lot early on, you know, not spending time with my wife. Uh, I had parents who were both ill and ultimately passed away. And I felt like I didn't spend enough time with them while they were literally like on their deathbed. You don't get that time (laughs) back. And I felt like I got another chance when I had kids. And that was kind of when I was like, no, I just like, I can't do this. I'm not going to be here 80 hours a week. I'm not going to miss every single thing in my kid's life. What for this 
cooking job. It's, it's just, you know, I'm glad totally. I realized it at an yeah. earlier age. Yeah. Yeah. I think I got really lucky and had this job sort of, you know, offered to me. And uh, if I didn't have that, I, 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 I don't know what I'd be with the pandemic right now. I'd probably be in a lot of trouble because <laughs> yeah. I was like, I was like ready to open this restaurant. And I think right now I'd be suffering pretty hard uh, as are a lot of people. And, you know, and, and there was honestly, there was a guilt factor in that for me, you know, it's like, you know, there's like a, you feel sort of guilty that like, cause it wasn't that long ago that I was in that, in that world with them and in that boat with them. And I was seeing so many people struggle around me and then we've weathered the pandemic, you know, and I've made it, you know, my team, we're still there and we're, you know, you know, our, t- our company allowed us to, we, we sort of like pivoted and we became this online content team. And now we've published like, we've done like, we did a virtual cookbook, like it's all for internal for employees, but we did, we, we published a, a virtual cookbook. We're calling it. It's basically like a database of like, right now it's almost at 700 recipes uh, in the last year. And then uh, we've done like 60 some odd cooking videos and, and we do all these live events for customers and employees in general. And then even customers of the company, we, you know, that are, you know, some of our customers are, are culinary related. So we started doing these customer spotlight series from my team where we would bring them in and we would let that customer tell their story. And then we do a demo together and then do a Q and a afterwards and as a way to sort of encourage our employees to go buy their product. So we, we've really flipped our team and our team has suddenly become like, video editors and recipe writers and copywriters and and event managers and it's totally and everyone's gotten comfortable in front of a camera which is amazing to see and does really great work with videos now and like you know and and it's funny to see like all the skills they developed and now we're trying to figure out how do we kind of incorporate that virtual world into our physical world when we go back well, it seems like so, everyone needs to be a content creator these days you know myself included yeah. and i never thought i'd have a podcast and, you know, you're trying to put out the best photos of your food that you can. And then if you want to start uh-huh. blogging, you have to learn how to write, or at least you should maybe try to get better at writing and all these things that I never mm-hmm. had in my toolbox. You know, I, I figured out and you see so many people now just spending so much of their days working on content. Yeah. It's funny. All my food photos now are stuff I'm making for my kids. <laughs> well, I've, I've been there as well. Well, where do you find <laughs> culinary inspiration? Like what keeps you going? So I have a cookbook problem. I buy a lot of cookbooks uh, still, even though I'm not the one kind of necessarily creating the food all the time. You know, the people that I've hired are 100% capable and do not need my help. And I should honestly not even offer it unless they ask for it because, uh, you know, I should just let them do their thing. But, you know, and a lot of it, honestly, I'd like, you know, I try to buy friends books and, you know, the Mr. Jews book came out a few months ago and it's pretty incredible and beautiful. I buy more books than I can read. It seems like lately, just because of the two young kids, uh, like every time I try to read a book, my eyes start closing because I'm exhausted half the time. But, uh, but I, a lot of them centered around work now, like, you know, we're doing Tokyo in about eight or nine months. We got to open Tokyo in February and I've never been, and I can't go because of the pandemic, I can't go and learn the culture. And, and so I'm buying like a ton of books and trying to read. And I've actually hired a Japanese consultant to help uh, help guide me and make sure that, you know, I'm not going to mess this one up because it's, it's a it's totally different than the other kitchens we've opened in the past, you know, but yeah. So, you know, cookbooks a lot online, a lot too, uh, you know, just reading things that come across my path. I look at people like Francisco Magoya constantly and Michael Lasconis, and it's obviously a different path for them at this point. 
Brooks Headley, like superiority burger is like, I don't know. I can eat there every day. I just made a batch of them at home because the the cookbook is amazing. And I've been to the restaurant. And the first time I had Mm -hmm. one of the burgers, I was like, damn, if this is not better than any beef burger I've ever had. Uh, And I'm a meat eater, but that is one tasty burger. So I made a batch just two days ago, which makes like 10 of them. And I love having those. Brooks is a, he's, he's some sort of magician, you know, he like, he's really great at just like really delivering flavor and umami and like, you know, the last time I was there was actually, it was actually my birthday last, uh, when we opened our New York kitchen in, in 2019, we were about to open and then, you know, we finished on the Sunday, which was my birthday. And I was like, all right, who's coming with me? And we like eight or nine of us went down to Superiority Burger. They were super busy. And Brooks was like, you know, he came out with like two trays of food and he was like, follow me. And he set them down on like a tree planter down the street. And he's like, this is table 23 or whatever he called it. He had a specific number for it. And he's like, he was like, enjoy. We basically all, you know, just around this tree planter all sampled everything. It was well, they have, so good. They have the most it's weird, like, awkward seats in there. There's like this bench yeah, seat totally. with like the little yeah. folding over kind of swing arm tables there where you can fit like four people up against the wall. Otherwise you got to take it outside. The thing about Brooks is like, I don't know if you know much about his musical career. Like in the world I come from, the hardcore punk world, Brooks is a legend. And then, and it's kind of, uh, it was kind of funny because Michael Lascona's introduced me to Brooks and he just emailed the two of us and said, you both like punk, you're both pastry chefs, you should know each other. And then Brooks was like, oh, I'm going to be coming out there. My band's doing a reunion show, you know, in a few months. So we should hang out when I come out. And I was like, oh, what band are you? And he was like, oh, Universal Order of Armageddon. And I will say, like, if you're into punk or like anything kind of like on that level, go check them out. They're incredible. Um, They were on Kill Rockstar's records, which was a pretty big label back in the day, indie label. But Brooks, he was in a band called Born Against. He was in the Wrangler Brutes. He's been in all these awesome bands. And so Brooks and I just hit it off and kind of both came from that same world. And, And I will say Superiority Burger is... And I don't know if he'll what he'll say when I say this, but like he's to me, it is a punk rock zine come to life as a restaurant. What was his his pace, his dessert book before that definitely had that feel too. Totally. And that's I think what he was going for. You know, it was like he was like, it's this cut and paste feel of like, let's put this together, let's put a lot of fun things in here. Some are inside jokes and weird things. And like, well, Steve Albini wrote the forward, right, to his book. Like, and Steve Albini's one of the like legendary you know recording engineers of you know he recorded you know on, a, on one note he recorded nirvana but he recorded so many incredible underground bands and he was also in like shellac and big black and you know he's an incredible musician in his own right so it's like you know the fact that that guy's writing the forward to brooks's book is pretty incredible anyway we can talk about brooks all day but <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i love I, brooks know, I love it. He, he's got so much personality but I, I that's what i really love a restaurant and a chef that are more than just that you know it's not just mm-hmm. the food i i find you know it's culinary arts if you want to be you know in my opinion uh, specific about that i think there's an art component to that and i really enjoy drawing for me inspiration from places outside of just the food world like i'm very inspired by going to an art gallery or you know listening to an album and i think you know that restaurant that's again like as i say like a, a restaurant that is a very personal statement that restaurant is very personal to brooks you know it's a personification of brooks in restaurant form and it's pretty amazing to see him pull that off and, and, and have something like that be so sustainable and so successful. 
Yeah. I feel like if I ever had a restaurant, it would be something like that, you know, just like small kind of awesome food, not overly complicated. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's how I like to eat these days too. I mean, there's a time and place for like that very fancy formal sit down experience, but I just want something that's going to, you know, wow me. That doesn't seem like it's overly stuffy. I just want to sit down with like 10 people and share everything, you know, yeah. it's, like, it's like the lazy Susan experience at an amazing Chinese restaurant. And like, you know, there's, there's one here called spices. Uh, they actually have a few locations in the Bay area, but we used to all go to one of me and like when I worked at Qua, it was like Evan Rich from Rich Table and Brett Cooper and all these, you know, we all worked together at that point. We, we would always go there on like birthdays and special occasions and just like order everything and like just have this giant pile on the Lazy Susan and spinning it and spinning it and eating and eating it. It was, it was awesome. Like that's how, I don't know, I just love that whole like sharing, like ordering a bunch of stuff and sharing it together. This is the way to go for me. Who would you want to work with or shadow if you could is there anyone still who would kind of be on your bucket list of people to work with there's a lot of people i'm very fascinated with you know um i don't know if i want to work with anybody anymore (laughs) i don't know know, honestly if i can hack it in a restaurant anymore you know what i mean like or at least just like hang out and be a fly on the wall just to see how they work i love the way renee redzepi works i love like I know some people are like, oh, it's just like fancy food for rich people or whatever. But like, he really thinks outside the box and he really takes things and transforms them. Like I think of things like his, uh, like his celery root, El Pastor and stuff like that. Like it's, it's incredible watching what he does with vegetables and I'm vegetarian. So like for me, like, you know, I, I, I love people who can do innovative things with vegetables you know, I always keep an eye on Wiley Dufresne, you know, I work for him, but like, I still like, you know, he's someone who is always a fascinating person and is uh, just, uh, he's like always fun to watch what he's up to. I'm trying to think who else, uh, Michael Solomonov, like we did a cookbook event with him at that work and he's really amazing too. I love his, his food and his work and his books. And he's, uh, you know, I really like what he does. Yeah. And then people like Shola, you know, Shola is incredible following what his work. Um, and I listened to his episode here on the podcast and it was, it was really great. He's, he's incredibly smart and not pretentious, you know what I mean? And like when he totally could be and get away with it if he wanted to be, but he's like, uh, he just seems very down to earth. Very, it's, he does amazing work and it's uh, watching what he does is pretty incredible. And you always you question of, everything, you know, the stuff he does, yeah. some of it seems so you should, you should have thought of it, right? Like you see what he does. It's like, oh, that's so yeah. simple. It's stupid, you know, but it's yeah. like nobody else thought of it. You know who I think does that really well too? And this is in a different way, not in the like kind of sort of like that sort of research and development way, but like I think Rich Table in San Francisco has an incredible way of taking the the like a comfort food dish and elevating it and giving it a twist that you're like, I, I wish I would have thought of that. And it, but it's so, and it's so tasty and so good. They're, they're pretty incredible there too. That's one of my favorite restaurants in the city is Rich Table. And then, I haven't uh, been out there in like 12 years. It's before kids. It's one of the last vacations I took yeah. before we had kids. So I'm overdue for a visit. Hopefully we'll get out there it's, again and bring the kids. There's a lot of awesome stuff out here, I will say. You know, it's changing and shifting like everywhere else right now. It's uh, So we'll see what happens. But it's there's a lot of amazing chefs and restaurants out here. Well, I know you've got a lot going on with all the places you're opening, but do you have any other goals, uh, either personally or professionally? Uh, personally, I, I always have these ideas of like wanting to do a cookbook in some way. And it's always been like, well, what do I have to say? 
Um, I've always been like, so I definitely, I want to do a cookbook at some point. I'm sort of thinking about like, honestly, I might do a veg sandwich or try to put together a veg sandwich cookbook because I feel like veg sandwiches are often terrible in restaurants and in a lot of places. They're like the afterthought. Oh, let's make a garden burger. Let's do, you know, but like the idea of kind of coming and putting together, like taking great vegetables and making great sandwiches and doing a whole like book on it to deep dive into it kind of excites me. I haven't done any of the work on that yet. So I, you know, it's a thought though. And it's something that constantly nags at me on a personal level. Uh, I want to do a podcast for like everybody else, I guess, but like, and send it around uh, musicians who, who are serious cooks, not necessarily restaurant cooks, but who take food seriously, but also musicians that are at least at a level where they like take music seriously. Like people who put out records, people actually play like real shows and real venues like people like Brooks, right? Like someone like, you know, interview someone like Brooks or like I have friends here that are in this amazing band called Kowloon Old City. And uh, the bass player, Ian, he's vegan, grows a ton of food, you know, makes his own pizza doughs and breads and just takes it all very seriously. He's not professional anyway. Honestly, I think if he wanted to go professional, he probably, he could probably go and develop those skills pretty well. But, uh, and then also the singer guitarist in that band, Scott, is is sort of like, following in those footsteps a little bit getting really into cooking we during the pandemic the three of us started like a text group and and they named it ask el cuchillo because they kept asking me food questions and so now it's just us goofing around on, on, on text all the time now but like you know interviewing those guys about food and 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 music and how they intertwine and food experiences on tour and things like that like that's sort of like uh, there's so many people from the punk world in the food world you know it's uh for me it's music food my kids and so like, I want to get in shape. I want to get back on my bike, things like that. Those are goals for me. And then for my team, I just want to see my team grow. You know, we're opening, you know, we're going to end up with nine kitchens, you know, in a few years and who knows, you know, it may branch off into other ways with the company, like the, the food service, you know, outlets we might create. I don't know. You know, you never know which way it's going to go. Salesforce is a very fast moving company and very innovative in the way they think about things. So, you know, we could be overseeing other food projects down the road, but like for now it's going to be nine of these sort of Ohana floor kitchens and, and really just, you know, for me becoming more organized, a better manager, like building a really strong, like just like a really great team, which we already have a really strong, great team. It's just, it's going to grow. And we got to kind of get our, we got to get our ducks in a row to make sure that the next five kitchens can like perform at the same level. And, you know, and so that's going to be a big undertaking and I'm pretty excited about it. So do you think you're done with restaurants for good? I would say most likely. I would say I'm, I'm, I'm happier than I've ever been at any job in my life. And uh, if it works out and I'm at Salesforce till I retire, I wouldn't be sad about that. So I can see myself just staying here. You know, um, I don't really have a bug to go back to restaurants there's times I miss it. I miss the energy at times. And I miss that sort of like, you know, that push, but I think I'm, I'm pretty happy. And I, I, it's allowed me to grow and explore new things that I never would have explored. And uh, it's, you know, it's, you know, we've opened, you know, at the end of this, we'll have opened nine kitchens and built nine different teams and, you know, around the world. And, and that's just not something that's uh, going to happen to me if I go back into restaurants and, and, and I don't know if like, you know, maybe I'm not the person who should open restaurants anyway. You know, I was uh, trying to do it and it's, it took me a long time to kind of even get to the point of having a business plan and trying to open something. And then I feel like I'm better suited where I'm at now. It's like, I just, it just clicks for me and I'm super happy. 
Yeah. I mean, sometimes you have to realize what your strengths and your weaknesses are and things happen in interesting and mysterious ways and just go with that. Right. Yeah. Being open, being open yeah, to sure. things. Well, thanks for coming yeah, on the show. I, I'm so glad we had a chance to catch up. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was great to finally connect and, you know, somewhat in person. At least yeah. Virtually. Hopefully we can do it in person at some point. I, like That'd I said, I want to get out that it. way. And if you ever find yourself out in the DC area, let me know. So to all of our Chefs Without Restaurants listeners, this has been Chris, and you can find us as always at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.